Okay, well, as Mike said there, it is our one-year anniversary, which I could not be more excited about. I think anniversaries provide a wonderful time just to remember, um, to reflect on what God has done, what he is doing in our midst. And, and as such, that's the, it's a message that I want to give today with, with that in mind, with remembering in mind. So if you'd like a title for this message, I've got it, Year One, A Story of Grace. And I'd be grateful if you'd turn with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now that we've finished the series on Ephesians, you have no idea where I'm going to go each week. <laughs> I have no idea where I'm going to go each week. No, I do. Next week we're starting a three-week series on, on giving. Why do we give? The weekend after that we have Bob Coughlin with us. The weekend after that we have Bob Coughlin with us because I convinced him that he wants to do two weeks and not just one. He wanted to do one, but I convinced him no. <laughs> You don't want to do one, you want to do two. So I actually convinced him to do three. So we're doing a Saturday night, Sunday morning, and the following Sunday. And then for two months after that, really taking us up until Christmas, we're going to do a series on evangelism, how we need to be a church that is taking the gospel that we enjoy in our community, which is the book of Ephesians, but we, we take it out there. We don't want to build a ghetto. We want to build a mission. We want to take it out into the world. So that's where we're going. But for today... Year one, a story of grace, and we're going to look together at 2 Samuel 7 and study from verse 1 through to the end of verse 11. This is what it says. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved from all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Lord, as we celebrate our anniversary, Lord, we celebrate a story of grace. Lord, would you lift our eyes today to your goodness, to your favor, to your mercy. Lord, would all of our hearts be quickened not with a horizontal glory, but with a vertical glory, as we reflect on your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, 
take pleasure in us as we delight ourselves in you, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the master builder of all. Amen. Ralph Goodall. Ralph Goodall was indeed an outstanding golfer. He played golf in the 1930s and was unique in that he won back-to-back U.S. Opens as well as winning the Masters Championship all by the time he was just 27 years old. Even though Ralph is so rarely heard of today, it was said of him that he was the best golfer in the world during that season of time. But after 27 years of age, Ralph suddenly seemed to lose all his golfing ability. He so-called fell off a cliff with regard to his golf. The reason for this is that he wrote a book about how to play golf. Part of the process of doing that involved a man taking pictures of him, playing different golf shots, pictures that would then be put together in the style of a flip book, where you flip the pages and the pages become like a moving picture. Unfortunately, as this was being prepared, the photographer took pictures of Ralph's golf swing from what appeared to be a strange angle. The camera was too far in front of Ralph, so when Ralph later looked at the pictures, it appeared that the golf ball was too far in front of him during his swing. As Ralph studied the pictures over some time, he got into his mind that he was playing the ball in the wrong place, and he decided to change his entire golf swing. The result was that Ralph Goodall never recovered his good form again. His golf game simply disappeared. He completely fell off the rankings, all because of a wrong perspective. Perspective matters. Perspective matters in all of life. It mattered to Ralph Goodall. Because of a wrong perspective, he never became a great golfer again. Having won so much, he never recovered his golf swing, and so his whole golf game went downhill. But perspective matters in all of life, doesn't it? When you go through trials and you're suffering, perspective matters, perspective of where God is, where he fits in with the trial we're going through. Perspective matters in marriage. If we're going to make it in our marriages, if we're going to glorify God in our marriages, perspective matters because it makes a big difference then how we respond to our spouse in certain situations. Perspective matters when it comes to finances and and energy and zeal and church. Perspective makes a great difference. And if there's one thing I've learned over this this last year, in planting a church, perspective really matters. Perspective makes such a difference to how we view days like today. I mean, as Mike shared in the in the notices, it's no it's no secret that our first year as Sovereign Grace Church, has indeed been a roller coaster year, has it not? I mean, it's been full on in so many ways. There has been incredible highs. There's been things that have just caused me to want to bring everybody I've ever met in my entire life and let them know what God is doing. But there's been other things that have happened in the roller coaster that's caused me never want to talk to anybody ever again that I ever knew to tell them anything. Because it's been a roller coaster. There's been some great things. And then there's been some real challenges. And what I've discovered is that church plants and church planters like myself are, I think, susceptible. Susceptible, particularly in their first year, because of this roller coaster effect to, the, to pride and to discouragement. Pride when things are going well. So we all go on Facebook and we let everybody know, you need to come to my church. It's amazing. We get proud about it. We think that we're doing it. We think, look what we're doing. Look at what we are building. But then when people don't really like it, 
and the planting team goes from over 45 adults to 15, we stop Facebooking. We let everybody know. We don't like this church anymore. We're leaving. And then for those that remain, what can occur, or what can occur for the church planter if he's not careful, is they can become very discouraging. You just think, Lord, what, what is this? I moved 10,500 miles with my family to give my life to a group of people that left? What, what is this? Perspective matters. And in church planting, perspective matters a great deal. And I believe as we review this last year, and as we consider years and years to come, the Lord doesn't want us to be tempted by pride and discouragement. The Lord wants us to be motivated with faith and hope and joy. Faith and hope and joy as we consider what he's been doing over the last 12 months. And faith and hope and joy as we consider the road ahead. And so what I want us to look at today and what I believe the Lord wants us to do, I believe God wants to give us a divine perspective on all things that pertain to Sovereign Grace Church. For the last year, you may wonder, how can I tell? Well, because he gives us his divine perspective. So all I'm going to do is repeat his words to you. And I believe God specifically wants to speak to us from 2 Samuel chapter 7. I believe he wants to give us his divine perspective on all that pertains to Sovereign Grace Church. And I believe he wants to give us that divine perspective through the divine perspective that he's seeking to issue King David with here in this text. See, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's perspective has indeed gone a little bit wonky. And God is trying to address that and help his son, help this new king with what is going to be a difficult road ahead for him as the new king. You see, David, to give you some text and background, David has just become king of Israel. And this is indeed the ultimate rags-to-riches story. I mean, it is incredible what takes place in David's life. David is the youngest of, of Jesse's sons. He's number eight, which basically means he's had all the hand-me-downs, all the different things have happened in his life. And the ultimate is his, he has been given the, the family task of being a shepherd boy. And we like that because it sounds quite nice, but it was not nice. It was not romantic. No one wanted to be a shepherd. That's why people would generally get out of jail and become shepherds because nobody else would give them a job. It was a job that nobody wanted. And so to be a shepherd boy, is this it? But as each one got born, they thought, praise God, there's another child on the way. You can be the shepherd boy. And it was passed down and David is now the run to the family and he is the shepherd boy walking around with a bunch of sheep. And yet while he was a shepherd boy, Samuel comes along, Samuel the great prophet, and he prophesies over David and anoints David with oil, saying that this young man, this young boy, is going to be the next king of Israel. Well, everybody would have been pretty surprised about that, not least his family. His dad, I'm sure, would have just thought, are you serious? That's why when you review the story in 1 Samuel, that they've gone through, Samuel has gone through all of the different sons and they're like, this isn't the one. God, this isn't the one. Have you got any more children? And Jesse goes, well, there is one more, I suppose, but that's his tone. He can't, he's like, I don't think it's going to be that one. Lo and behold, it is. It is that one. David is going to be king. And at the age of 30, this shepherd boy does indeed become king. Saul, the people's choice of king, is dead. And God has now called David the king of, that God has chosen 
to be king over Israel. And God quickly blesses David as king. He has victory over the Jebusites really quickly. I mean, this is full on. Jerusalem has been owned by the Jebusites for a long time. David becomes king, rallies the army, does those bad boys in. They're removed from Jerusalem. So David says, you know what? We're going to call this the, the, you know, the, the city of David now because this is a pretty cool thing to do. So Jerusalem becomes the headquarters for this grand nation of Israel. They celebrate. The king of Tyre builds David a house of cedar. He sends in some master builders and carpenters and builds David a beautiful cedar home now in Jerusalem, the city of David, his hometown, the new capital of Jerusalem. God also gives them victory over the Philistines. The long-term arch enemy of Israel has now been defeated decisively by David and his army. But then in this chapter, David sits down He finally takes a seat in his new home that the king of Tyre has built for him. This beautiful cedar home. And he's chatting with his friend, his best friend, Nathan. And he says, Nathan, um, here's the thing. I'm going to build God a house. You see, you very quickly see in this text that what David is doing is David is a man who loves God. He loves God with all his heart. He's amazed. He is absolutely amazed. He knows who he is. He knows that he used to be a shepherd boy out with the sheep. He knows that God has called him to a task that he can barely comprehend or believe. He is in love with God. It's said of him that he was a man after God's own heart. He's amazed by grace and loves God. And that is so clear in the text that that is King David's heart. And yet what is also clear is David, this new king, He feels the need to want to prove himself. Can you understand that temptation? Because I can. You're a shepherd boy. You've just become king. And now you feel that sense of, what am I doing? There's this whole nation looking at me. Lord, I, I don't know how to lead. And very quickly, his perspective begins to become skewed. He's so amazed about what God has done for him. He so loves God that his disposition very quickly is, God, I want to do something for you. I want to build something for you. He wants to prove himself then to the people. All these people know that David used to be a shepherd boy. And so he wants to reveal to these people that, listen, God didn't screw up on this choice. I'm going to be a good king. Check it out. Look at what I'm going to do. I'm going to bid God a house. And he wants to prove himself to God as well. He wants to reveal to God that, Lord, you you didn't make a a stupid decision in choosing me for this task. Lord, I want to give my life for you. And so I know what I'm going to do. Lord, in love for you, as I prove myself to you that you have made a good choice, I'm going to build you a house. You can understand how he got there, can't you? In verse 3 then, he says it to Nathan. And Nathan's response is, well, I, I quite like it. He says, listen, He says, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. That's what you want your mate to say to you when you come up with a good idea. I'm going to build God a house. He says to Nathan about it, and Nathan practically gives him a high five. This is full on, David. This is a legend of an idea. Yes, build God a house. That would be absolutely amazing. You will be able to show to Israel and show to God just how amazing then you are and what a good choice this was. Bad counsel. So God sits David down through the prophet Nathan, who who the word of the God came to, and God sits him down and reminds David of three important things. 
He wants to give David perspective as he's become king. He wants to communicate with David what is really going on in his heart. And he wants to communicate to David truths that will bring hope and faith and peace for David's road ahead. You know what? And these are three truths that I believe God in his grace wants to minister to us this morning. As we examine this text, David's first words as he becomes king and God's speaking. Oh my, I believe the Lord wants to speak to us this morning. So three things, simple things. Number one, past grace. The first thing God reminds David of through Nathan is past grace. Let's look at it together. Verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, where, why have you not built me a house of cedar? See what he's doing? Straight up front, he said, David, that's awful kind of you. I haven't asked you to build me a house. I haven't communicated that to you. You're my king leading these people. I haven't asked you to build me a house. This is what he does say to him, though. This is what he says, David, this is what I have done. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, listen to this. David, I took you. David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people of Israel. David, I, I took you. David, I know the pressure that you're under. I know the challenge that you are now facing to want to prove yourself to the people of Israel. I know the challenge that you're now facing to want to prove yourself to me. But David, I've never asked you to build me a house. And David, I need you and want you to understand as you begin to be king over my nation. David, I, I took you. David, this didn't start with you. It started with me. I took you. You know, this year has indeed been a roller coaster, eh? And in that roller coaster, there has been challenges and there has been highs, as we said, and there has been lows. And one of the lows for me, without doubt, was when we had so many people leave quick. It was. You know, we had been a part of Christchurch in the UK for 17 years and we loved them and we did life with these people and it was an absolute distinct privilege in my life to be their pastor for over 600 folk, lay my life down for people who... I wanted to stick together. I wanted to build these things and play a part of brandishing the gospel and applying it and taking it out. And so when Emma and I arrived here, really to come and lead a group of people that have asked us to come, the assumption was people were sticking together and I'll gladly lay my life down as your pastor to try and lead you and care for you and as we seek to build together. And very quickly, as you know, we had a number of people leave. And so the group went from large to, 
too small. Some people sensing that they'd been called on by the Lord. Other people just sensing that sovereign grace, me, this church wasn't what they wanted. What they wanted. They didn't like the preaching. They didn't like the worship. They didn't like the life groups. They didn't like the discipleship. They didn't like the mission. They didn't like me. And one by one, they left. It was hard. And I'd be lying to you to say anything else. It, It was difficult to having left home to come to a place that you're trying to build a home and see within 12 months people go and, and see our children knitted into relationships where we had purposely tried to help those relationships to then see those purposed relationships already splitting up was a distinct challenge. And it has been a challenge for me. But often people say to me, you're not going to go home, are you? You're not going to go back, are you? No, I'm not. People say, are you discouraged? Is this been a real challenge for you? Are you just, is this church just going to fold? No. no. No, it's not. Why? What has kept me going for the last year as your pastor? It's not primarily been the people I've seen because many of them have gone. It's this. These three words. I took See, this local church didn't start with me. It started with God. It was in November 2008 when my wife and I were chatting over breakfast. We were in BHS, which we don't even have here, British Home Stores. It's quality. I wish they did have it here. We could call it AHS here instead. But British Home Stores. And we went out for breakfast on Monday, my day off, and we were just chatting about life. We were probably the most contented people in the entire world. We had a wonderful church and I have a wonderful wife, wonderful children. They're in a great school. We sought to develop relationships in the community over many years, people who we'd sought to do life with who didn't know the Lord and people who sought to do life with that did know the Lord. And yet as we were chatting over breakfast, halfway through my sausage, Emma suddenly comes up with the following. We are discussing Australia. And we're discussing it because I'd been assigned the task alongside Pete Greasley to help oversee what was taking place in Australia. And... I was a part of the process of discerning how the Lord may be leading sovereign grace in Australia. The challenge was at that time, through a series of events, we didn't have an individual ready to lead the plant. So my wife was discussing this with me. And she said, well, love, what type of guy do you think would be needed to go and plant the church in Australia? And I said, well, I don't know, but here's a list of things. I listed about seven things. I just thought, well, he's going to have to do this. He's going to have to be like this. At which point she said, well, love, you sound like that type of guy to me. Talk about a Nathan moment. At which point she laughed and I laughed. And then we continued to laugh nervously. And I tell you what, we knew. We knew in that moment that we have just had an and suddenly in our lives The plan was long-term in Christchurch if I'd remained there and if God had worked in that way that I was going to become the senior pastor of that church and continue it. But in BHS, over breakfast, the Lord was reviewing our direction. He was 
changing the direction of our family, changing the direction of, of our whole lives. We sat on it for several weeks, but then eventually plucked up the courage to ask Pete about it, thinking, I don't know what he's going to say, because we've built the team this way to do a certain thing. Uh, but we did, and we mentioned, look, Pete, this is what we feel the Lord's putting on our heart. And we brought in the other pastors. What do you think? Because I don't want to rush this decision. This decision would be full on for me and my family. And so what do you think? It was three months later that actually we discerned with other people's help that, you know what, the Lord did seem to be in this. And so our direction was set to come to Australia. It was in 2009 then, in 2010, that we just had an exhilarating year. We still wouldn't, weren't here yet. But what was quickly happened is we were regularly contacted by people who felt that the Lord had also put on their hearts to be a part of Sovereign Grace Church Sydney planting team. And so we just went through a whole season where people would be Skyping me and emailing me and wanting to get phone calls with me. So people like Dave Elsing, who were in Christchurch at the time, who would come over from Perth, but instead of now wanting to go back to Perth, really felt that he wanted to come with me to Sydney to help plant this local church. Coyote and Christina, who were with us in Christchurch, and we loved being with these guys, and who they loved being a part of Christchurch, as did us. It was with Pete and I that they came in one day. They had, they had no idea that the Lord had put on my heart to come to Australia. Did you? <laughs> but this couple came and spoke to Pete and I as their pastors and said, look, we just feel the Lord may be putting Australia on our hearts. What do you think? No one knew about me. So we're just saying, well, that's an interesting thought. There may be others that may be feeling that. And quickly became apparent that these guys would also be coming to help plant the church. Brendan Willis contacted me from Bandaracer in the middle of nowhere over a dodgy Skype connection to communicate that he too had been following Sovereign Grace and wanted to start doing life with the different things. And at the end he said, look, I'm so looking forward to you being my pastor. You are my pastor. And I said, I'm not your pastor. I'm not even there. You haven't met me yet. And he said, yeah, but I'm going to start operating to you as my pastor. I then had a conversation with Jesse and Liz and Jesse did exactly the same. And he said, I, I so appreciate you being my pastor. I said, I'm not your pastor. I'm not even there. But he wanted me to be his pastor. And slowly but surely people started to be knit together and drawn together. Here's the point I want to make with that. That was not me. I was not even here. It was God. It was his initiative drawing people together. You know, those days, that BHS breakfast, and then the numerous letters and calls and random things that were taking place in our lives where the Lord was confirming that we were to go to Australia, and then the numerous people that were contacting to say, we want to help be a part of the planting team. We want to help get this church launched. They were exciting days and they were days without question marked by God's initiative. And that's the point. They were days marked by God's initiative. You see, folks, there are days that I believe God doesn't want us to lose sight of. We didn't start this church. God started this church. I didn't initiate this church. I'm not that bright. I'm an English guy who's just trying to pastor a church in Wales. I don't want to move. It's a challenge to get on a plane and go to Spain, let alone Australia. And yet, that's what the Lord laid on our hearts. And so that's what we did. 
And I believe God wants to remind us of these days so that we may be envisioned in great perspective that it started with him. It's past grace. It started with him. What confidence and peace and joy that should give us as we review the last year. And what confidence and peace that should give us as we review future years. It did not start with me. It did not start with any core team. It did not start with Mike Pasternitz, even though he was used instrumentally by the Lord as a means of grace. It started with God. And so David, David, listen. I know the pressures you're under. I know what it is like to become king, but David and Sovereign Grace Church, I know the challenges that you have faced, the different things that you've seen happening in the last 12 months, but David and Sovereign Grace Church, listen, I took you. The story doesn't finish there. God then starts communicating to David about present grace. Let's read verse 9. That's point 2, present grace says this, and I have been with you. You love that? And I've been with you wherever you went and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. David, listen, I've been with you. David, I understand the challenges you have faced David, I understand the pressures that you are under as you continue to build my kingdom. I understand that. But David, here's the thing I want you to understand. You're only here because I took you. I came after you and you're only still here because I kept you. Because I was keeping you. Because I was with you in everything you did. David, you remember that war against the Jebusites? I won you that war. David, you remember when you went to battle against the Philistines? I won you that war. David, you're only still here because I kept you. You know, this must have been good news for David, don't you think? You just become king, you're 30. Oh, praise God, he's with me and he's been with me all the time. It must have been great news. It must have also been a tad humbling, don't you think? To think that you were doing these things. Check it out. Look at God, I'm showing you. Look at the things I'm doing because I love you. And God says, David, pop a seat a moment. I've been doing these things. I've been doing these things through you. They've only been happening because I've been with you. Because I've kept you. David, you're only still here because I've sustained you. David, you're only still here doing the things you are doing because I've enabled you and I've held you and I've kept you every part of the way. This would have been good news and I think humbling news and I trust it has a humbling effect on our lives as well, folks. Because in the right sense, we need to be humbled at different times, don't we? We need to be humbled. You know, I think in church planting, like I said before, there can be just this idea that, check it out, We are the answer to Sydney. Praise God, we've arrived. We are ready to take the city for Jesus. On present increases, I would think it's going to take three, maybe three and a half weeks. You know, you should just think, check it out. Look at what God's doing. There's people pouring through the doors, starting points with 50 people in it. You think, this is unbelievable. Clearly, they've been waiting for us. You know what happens? You start to think, yeah, God's blessing us. Check it out. And then you start to think, We're doing a pretty good job. We're doing a lot of things right. It must be the way we're welcoming people. It's causing people to get saved every week. I don't know. It just must be what we're doing. It's probably our structures. 
It's so easy to get proud. And yet, as God communicates to David and as he communicates to us, what a helpful reminder that Sovereign Grace Church, it isn't you. I took you and you're only still here because I've kept you and I've been keeping you throughout the whole time. You know, when we stop and we see that, what a delight it is then to review what God has been doing over the last year, don't you think? When you just stop and you park yourself a moment and you stop reviewing the many different challenges we've had and start to open our eyes and sit down and look at this, it's not hard to be amazed at what God has done in just 12 months. 12 months is not a long time. But in 12 months, many things have happened. We've been able to see his saving grace. We've been able to see people get saved, particularly in our early weeks. I don't know what was going on. But in God's grace, we saw a number of folk got saved. Now, many of them didn't speak English, which was a bit of a problem. So they found Chinese churches and other local churches around the area that they could give themselves to. And I think that was a great thing. In God's grace, a number of them got saved here through the gospel that was being shared both publicly and independently by people in the local church. Across the whole year then, there's been a number of people that have come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior that will be rejoicing around the throne with us that a year ago weren't. That's saving grace. And then there's restoring grace, which we've seen. You think of people like Chris and Allison who have shared their testimony on a number of occasions. They walked through those doors a year ago. They came because they were invited, disillusioned with church, particularly Chris, fed up with church, hadn't been to church for a number of years, not pursuing his walk with the Lord in any way. Allison perplexed as to where God was in various things. And yet today you see him on the front, worshipping the Lord, serving passionately, amazed by grace, feeling not just that they are a part of a home, but one of our key people in the home that are helping us build. That's providing grace. And they're just one example of many people who had got disillusioned with church or had not found a church home, that now they have a place they can call home. That's God's grace. That's God knitting people together. Then the sustaining grace. For sure, sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. True? It happens. It's amazing how many troubles you can face in just one year. Stuff happens. And yet in God's grace, he has sustained us throughout, hasn't he? Think of Mary Shaw, who in February burnt both of the bottom of her feet. You remember? She was walking over that hot sand. Both of the bottom of her feet peeled off. And as they take her into hospital to get skin grafts, Amy decides that it is now time to give birth. What are we going to do? And this church, as a means of grace, began to rally around them and, and care for them and help them. And God sustained them incredibly through that. So that week in, week out, they were coming back to this church and saying, it is well with our soul. That's not church. That's a savior. That's not a group of people. That's a God who gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding. That is his sustaining grace. There's been numerous things happening behind the scenes in this local church. Things with marriages, things with parenting, things with employment things that so often people don't perceive or see. But I see them because those individuals come into my home and they talk to me. Well, I can report to you, God has been incredibly gracious to us this year. As a family, keeping people together, seeing children growing in different ways, 
God has sustained us in his amazing grace. We've also seen sanctifying grace, have we not? One of the joys of being a pastor is you get to see people change. You get to see God at work in people's lives. It doesn't happen in a moment, but it happens over a period of time. And so once you've had a number of months, you get to see people are, people are changing. God is ministering in people's lives and in their souls, and he's changing them by his grace from one degree of glory to another, just as he had promised. Well, we've been seeing that in operation. I remember Sue Crowley at a baptism. She gave a testimony, and, and you finished your testimony, I'll never forget it, and you just said, you know what? One of the things I really want to grow in is joy. I, I want to grow in joy. I want to be more joyful. And I recalled that because a number of weeks ago as I was leading worship, I was looking out, and I didn't recognize you, but I saw a young lady with her arms in the air, with a smile on her face, singing to the King of Kings. And then I noticed it's Sue. And I thought, Lord, you've been good to us. How kind. Well, you've ministered in someone's heart and you have grown in joy. That's the Lord's work. Think of Mike Pasolich, who a year ago was sharing with us, I, I want to grow in serving. I, I need to be more selfless. You have. You have. One of the first guys here, one of the last to leave. That was not you a year ago. That's God's mercy and grace now to you. We wouldn't have been where we are now if it wasn't for the way you serve and the way you care and the way you apply yourself to this task. We shouldn't forget these things. We don't want to move too quickly on. We want to stop and pause and give thanks because that is not Mike improving through self-initiative. That is the Holy Spirit working in Mike's life. So all glory then goes upward as we see, Lord, you're changing people. Think of Janelle Smith, who a year ago was sharing just her concern over whether she'd definitely make it. Would she do enough? And as we reviewed Ephesians, she realized the Savior's done enough. Struggling with assurance, 2010, amazed by assuring grace, 2011. I would come and move every year for moments like that. Providing grace. Providing grace. There are so many jobs to get done, is there not, in a local church. Some of you have been used to churches where it's all set up and you walk in and you sit down and somebody says, stand up to sing, and you do, and then you go home at the end. And then you rock up to Sovereign Grace Church and you realize, unless I put a seat out, there's not even a seat. It's, it's a completely different atmosphere. It's so different, and there are so many jobs to get done to be able to build a local church. Musicians and PA, welcoming team, generations, teens, finance, setup, hospitality, bookshop, the list goes on and on and on. God has provided us with people to serve in every one of those roles. Let's not take that for granted. That's God's providing grace as he builds his church, providing people to be parts so that a body can be built up as each part is working properly for the glory of God. He's also provided us with leaders, hasn't he? Life group leaders, who in my opinion are a fine group of men supported wonderfully by their wives, and a core team 
as we move forward, that you think, I, I have the utmost respect for these men. I'm proud to be able to do life with these men. They are all expressions of God's provision. Folks, let us never lose sight of who's building this. We're only here because he took us. And we're only still here because he kept us. It's the only fathomable reason. Because in grace, he's kept us. That's our story. And it's David's story as well. David, I understand the pressures you're under as king. But you are only king because I took you. You are only king because I have kept you. And David, with this idea about you wanting to build me a house, mm, let's look now at future grace. Number three. Second half of verse nine, he says this. And I will make you, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, listen to this, that the Lord will make you a house. How Sweet is that. David, I know you want to build a house for me. David, I know in grace and love and mercy you want to prove yourself to the people of Israel and you want to prove yourself to me. But David, you do not need to. David, I took you. David, you're still here because I kept you. And David, with this idea that you want to build me a house, David, sit down. Son, I'm going to build a house for you. It's me. I'm going to build a house for you. You know, as you examine then the storyline of Scripture, you see that that is exactly what God did, didn't he? Through the line of King David, 28 generations later, an even greater king would come. A great king who would be told about in Genesis chapter 3. A great king that although the serpent would crush his heel, would bruise his heel, the serpent crusher, the great king to come, would crush his head. All the way through the Old Testament then, we're waiting for this serpent crusher, this great king. We see shadows of him, pointers of him, examples of him, illustrations of him. Every, every chapter whispers the name of this great king in the Old Testament. But 28 generations after King David, through his bloodline, a greater king would be born. His name would be Jesus. Born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. God would indeed, through the bloodline of David, make his name great. And God's grace then, as he died upon the cross, as Jesus died, it can look like an absolute tragedy. I mean, it defies belief. They've been waiting for the king for hundreds of years. He's finally arrived, the saviour, the messiah, the great king. And now he's on a cross. What is this? It appears to be a distinct tragedy, and yet it's not. Jesus himself, the great king, disclosed to us that this is indeed a grand triumph. 
For he died to make it possible for all those who would put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior and repent of their sin to know eternal life to know that they've been reconciled to God the Father. He made it possible through his work and his death and his resurrection to bring life and life in abundance. He made it possible for us to worship God as our Savior and King. It was all through the triumph of the cross. But that's not all he was doing on the cross. On the cross, through his death, he died so that a new house, a new temple could be built. It's a temple that we see all the way through the book of Ephesians. A people made of living stones that would come from all tribes and languages and nations. A people that God in grace through Jesus Christ would bring together into local churches by his grace and for his glory so that those local churches could represent Jesus in their communities and so that those local churches could reveal the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly realms. Jesus died so that that house, that temple could be built. And so, David, it's very kind of you to offer to build me a house. But David, through your bloodline, I'm going to build you a house. Isn't that wonderful? That is exactly what God did. He did build him a house. Through Jesus Christ, my friends. He's still building it. What is my hope as we continue and move forward as Sovereign Grace Church? Is it in me or the other leaders? You must be joking. No way. Is it in people? I love you guys dearly, but but is it you? If we go through another year, which I trust we won't, but if we did like this year, Is it you? Are you the security? No. No, you're not. Our security is this, that the house that Jesus Christ laid his life down to start building isn't completed yet. He's still building it to this day. That's why we're here, because he's taking us one living stone at a time and he's bringing us together into families into houses, into new temples. And that is where my security and my surety lies. As a pastor, there are many things that I'm not sure about. <laughs> and that list, as each year goes on of me being a pastor, seems to grow. There's so many things. That I just, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know how some of those things are going to unfold. I, I don't know. I'm not a prophet fortune teller. I'm a pastor. I pastor people that are in front of me, not the ones that I think might be at. I don't know many things about the future. There's many things that I'm not sure about, but here is what I am sure about. Philippians 1 verse 6. For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That's where my hope lies. The truth that God in all grace who began a good work in you, who is taking living stones and building them into a house, is still doing that to this day. And he will carry on building it until he returns. Folks, I want to encourage you. In grace, he took us. He started us some years ago and he took us. That's past grace. We're still here a year on because he's been keeping us. That's present grace. And we will make it by his grace 
Because in grace, he's brought us safe this far. And in grace, he'll lead us home. That's future grace. And so by God's grace then, as we review the last year and as we review the road ahead, would pride and discouragement not be our themes? But would hope and joy and perseverance be the response of our heart? He's building it. It's all a grace. Let's pray. Well, Lord, how can we thank you enough for your profound grace? Lord, what you have started in our lives defies belief. It is scandalous in its purpose and its glory. Lord, before there was even time, you you chose us for adoption and for salvation. And then when the time was right, you started to knit us together as a family. Lord, as as we review the last year, would you give us eyes to perceive your grace? Would you give us eyes to see that this is all you and it always will be? So, Lord, thank you for the faith and the hope and joy that we can have in you. It's all you, Lord. And so would all glory go to you. Amen.